0: Well, this morning marks the end of our sermon series in 1st and 2nd Samuel and the Psalms. I'm very grateful to Pastor Tom and Pastor Steve for taking us through Psalm 119 and Psalm 13 the past two weeks. This morning, we're going to be back in 2nd Samuel looking at the last chapter of the book, 2nd Samuel 24. Now, all year long, we've been talking together about what it means to have an undivided heart for God. That's been our theme. That's been our prayer for the year. What that means is an undivided heart for God. That means to be singularly focused on God, to love God, to fear God, to trust in God alone, to listen to God, to have God be the center of our lives. What does it look like? to have an undivided heart for God. And throughout the year, we've been asking different questions, such as, how does a person with an undivided heart deal with the loss of a loved one? How does a person with an undivided heart approach the issue of reconciliation? We began the sermon series by asking the question, how does a person with an undivided heart pray? Well, this morning as we finish the sermon series it's appropriate that having begun it talking about prayer that this morning we get to ask the question what does it look like when a person with an undivided heart worships God what does it mean to worship God with an undivided heart well if you're not there already please turn to 2 Samuel 24 2 Samuel 24 it's page 234 the Bibles the church provides, 2 Samuel 24. While you're turning, let me tell you that the first verse and actually the whole chapter raises some theological and ethical questions. The chapter we're going to look at does not address those theological and ethical questions. And therefore, the substance of the sermon this morning, as I've thought through and prayed through it, is not about those theological and ethical questions. God seems to want to take us somewhere else with this text, and we want to go where he wants to take us. However, you can't get past the first verse in which some of these questions arise. And so I'd like to just mention them briefly before we get on to what I think the text is really about. Verse number 1 of chapter 24. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and He, that's the Lord, incited David against them saying, go take a census of Israel and Judah. Now, you can't get into this story without that verse causing some questions. First of all, why is God angry with Israel? Well, it doesn't say. Second and more troubling, if God's angry with Israel, why doesn't He just punish them? Why does he have to get David to do something so that God can punish Israel? Again, no answer. And perhaps most troubling of all, why does it say that it's God who incited David to do something that he wasn't supposed to do? If we're honest... This verse does not fit into our theological categories very well. The text doesn't answer those questions, so this morning we're not going to try to answer those questions because, frankly, I think they're almost too hard for us to answer. However, I don't want it to be a distraction as we go through this story, and so let me tell you what I think the best answer to them is. If you look at the parallel account of this story, we have actually this story that we're going to look at today twice in Scripture. Once here and once in 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles introduces the story this way. Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. So what I think is going on here is that somehow Israel has done something. There is some sinful behavior that is in the nation that is upsetting God. Satan also wants to tempt David. And so God has decided to use all of this and work all of it together to accomplish something great. The nearest parallel that I can think of in the Bible is Luke 22 where Satan has come to Jesus and asked Jesus to tempt Peter and Jesus seems to know that Peter's going to fail he says after you have fallen when you turn back strengthen your brothers that somehow in all of this this verse reminds us that God is bigger than our theological categories and that somehow God uses sin and Satan's temptations to work together, including even our own failures, to bring about his good. Now, I know this is not a holy and completely satisfying answer. But this verse reminds us, at the end of the day, God's ways are above ours. And sometimes we just have to trust him. We just have to trust that he's good and that he's working everything out, including what Satan does, including our own failures, to accomplish his greater purpose. Well, 2 Samuel doesn't want us spending lots of time on those theological questions. Instead, what it wants us to do is hear a story. And the story goes something like this. David decides he wants to take a census of the fighting men of Israel, meaning he wants to count how big his army is. Joab, who's the commander of his army in a rare show of godliness, actually says to David, please don't do this. This is a bad idea. And they say, well, what's wrong with taking a census? I mean, is it wrong to count people? No. In fact, God himself takes a census. It's recorded in the scriptures called the book of Numbers. It's a census that God took. He counted the people of Israel. So what's the problem here? Well, the problem here is is that Joab senses something that we sense as well. David's doing this for the wrong reason. Okay, David is not counting the people so that he can better serve them. He's not counting the people so that he's uh, better able to take care of them. He's counting the fighting men of Israel. He's counting how big his army. Because he's forgotten what Psalm 33 verse 16 says. No king is saved by the size of his army. See, it's a constant temptation if you're a king to count how big your army is because it's easy to put your faith in. Look, everything's going to be okay. We've got a bigger army than they do. And I'm encouraged by this because I watch David stumble in the exact same ways I stumble in. And I think, I know better. I know better than to put my faith in my bank account. I know better than to put my faith in the way circumstances are going. I know better than to put my faith in a performance review. But even though we know better, it's so easy to fall back into old habits and old patterns and put our faith in stuff that should not have our faith. And here David's doing that same thing. He's counting the size of his army because he thinks that if he's got a big enough army, he's going to be okay. Well, it takes 10 months to actually number all of the fighting men of Israel. When that is over, verse number 10, after the census is done, it says, David was conscience stricken after he had counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, O Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. Nobody had to tell David this. The Holy Spirit began to convict him. Look, you're putting your faith in the army and not in God. And David realizes it and he comes to the Lord and he says, I'm such a fool. I'm such a fool for trusting in the size of the army instead of in you. Well, after he does this, something very unusual happens. God says to David, okay, I'll let you pick your punishment. And he gives them three choices, three years of famine, three months of Israel being defeated by their enemies or civil war, it's not clear, or three days of plague. Verse 14, David said to Gad, who is the prophet who comes to announce this offer, I am in deep distress let us fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercy is great, but do not let me fall into the hands of men. Essentially what David is saying, look, I got myself into this mess by thinking I was smart. The way I'm getting out of this mess is realizing that I'm a fool. I don't want to make this decision. So even though God gives him the choice, which of these three do you want? David says only a fool would make that choice. He's like, God, I want you to make it for me. I trust in your mercy Lord whatever you decide of those three I don't know which one is best I don't know which one is worst God you decide and so God picks for the nation of Israel remember he's angry with Israel he picks for the nation of Israel a plague and we are told that the plague goes through the nation of Israel and the agent of the plague is an angel of destruction that the Lord has sent and 70,000 people die well as the plague is traveling throughout the land of israel it's coming closer and closer to the capital city of jerusalem this is where david lives this is where his family is as the angel of destruction is approaching the city of jerusalem god sees this destruction and his heart is pain even though israel has sinned god sees their pain he sees their their difficulty and in his mercy he says to the angel of destruction wait right here just a minute Don't go to Jerusalem just yet. And he pauses him at a place known as Aruna's threshing floor. A man named Aruna has a threshing floor, and that's where the angel of destruction is paused. And we pick up our story in verse 18. On that day, Gad, the prophet, went to David and said to him, Okay, look, the angel of destruction is right here outside the city gates, waiting to come in. Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. When Aruna looked and saw the king and his men coming toward him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Aruna said, why has my lord the king come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord so that the plague on the people may be stopped. Aruna said to David, "Let my Lord the king, take whatever he pleases him and offer it up. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering, and here are the threshing sledges and the ox yokes for the wood. O king Aruna gives all this to the king. Aruna said to him, May the Lord your God accept you' At this point, the angel of destruction is waiting outside the city and Gad the prophet says to David, look, go offer a sacrifice to the Lord to stop the angel of death from coming. So he goes to the man who owns the threshing floor and says, look, I need this land because I got to offer a sacrifice. And the guy who owns the land says, well, have it, (laughs) take it. I'm giving it to you. Remember, Aruna lives there. That angel of destruction is coming. His family's in the line too. And after all, David's the king. Who wouldn't want the opportunity to give the king something to bless him? So take the land, take the animals, take the wood, take anything you need. I give it all to you free of charge. But in David's reply, we see what we're looking for when we talk, talk about what does a person with an undivided heart, how do they worship God? And the key verse for us this morning, verse number 24. But the king replied to Aruna, no, I insist on paying you for it. And here's the phrase. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered prayer in behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. The key verse for us this morning is verse 24. When we ask the question... What does it look like to worship God with an undivided heart? David says, I will not offer the Lord worship sacrifices that cost me nothing. I'm not going to give God cheap worship, even though I could have it for free. Uh A person with an undivided heart wouldn't offer something like that to God. This is reminiscent of what Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15 says. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. I think because we say that phrase so often, sacrifice of praise, we don't hear the words in it. Sacrifice of praise, meaning that praise is intended to be a sacrifice. It's intended to cost us something. Which means that when we get together for worship on a Sunday morning, for example, that our common mentality is, what am I going to get out of the worship service? And we think when we walk through those doors at the end of the day, what did I learn? Was I being fed? Did I resonate with the worship Did something happen today that was a blessing to me? And you know what? Thank God that when we come to worship, we do learn things. Thank God that when we come to worship, that we get to experience God's presence and we're blessed by it. Thank God that when we come to worship, we are fed. God's designed it that way. But there is a counterbalancing truth, not a contradictory truth a counterbalancing truth that when we come to worship we're also supposed to think not what am i going to receive but what have i come to give right. that instead of asking the question what did i get out of worship today the question that second samuel 24 wants us to ask what did it cost me to worship god this morning. And so I was thinking through this, what does it mean for it to cost us something to worship God? And some examples came to mind. I thought of the Korean student here who on his own time, just simply voluntarily takes the sermon manuscripts when I get them written on Wednesday or Thursday and translates them into Korean Friday and Saturday. It takes them about five hours And that's so all the people who come and participate at Calvary for whom English is not their first language, but they speak Korean fluently are able to pay closer attention to what's happening during the sermon and be able to understand better. That's a sacrifice. Five hours every Friday and Saturday. I think of those Korean families who come here. How much easier would be to go to a Korean language speaking church? There are many of them around. Yet they realize that God is more glorified in ethnic diversity than he is in homogeneity. And so they've chosen to come here in which English is is not their first language, yet they struggle to make it through the worship and to listen. God is pleased with that. That's a sacrifice that costs them something. But the same is true for those who are Africans who are here or Hispanics or Europeans or African-Americans This is essentially a white American church. And there are others here who have chosen to be part of this because God doesn't want us to be simply a white American church. And it costs something for people to come and worship in a culture that's not inherently their own. I think about the parents who bring their children to the worship service and they have to work hard to pay attention and try to worship God despite the distractions all around them. That costs something. It's easier not to have them here. But we know that Jesus says, don't, don't hinder the children from coming to me. And that God loves to be praised from the mouths of children. I think of you children who are here participating in a worship service that's not necessarily designed with you in mind. It's a struggle sometimes to come and to listen to a long sermon and to sing songs that you may not know. It's costing you something to worship God and God is pleased with that sacrifice. I think of the people who are here who are every Sunday choosing to sing songs they may not normally like to sing because they want to give God worship. That's costing them something. I think of those who are here for whom it's physically difficult sometimes to stand during singing or physically difficult to navigate this sanctuary because it's not handicap friendly. Yet you're choosing to do that. That costs something. You're offering God a sacrifice of praise. I think of those of you who come and choose to worship God even when It's been a ridiculously bad week. When your spiritual tank is on empty and you've got nothing to give and you say, but he's worth it. And even though I don't feel it, I'm going to come and I'm going to praise his name. And Job said, even if he slays me, I still, I'm going to bless him. It's costly to worship God in an empty tank. It's hard to worship him when nothing is there. That's a sacrifice of praise. I think of those who've given up Sports travel teams, for example, because they want to give God something that costs them. They want to offer to him something on Sunday morning. And so they're not going away and, and missing three or four Sundays a month because they're off tra- that, There is a cost associated with that. And God is pleased because that is a sacrificial act of worship. I think of those here who've said no to a promotion. Or to a job because it would require them to miss too many Sunday mornings. And they want to come and offer to Jesus costly worship. I think about those who get up on Sunday mornings and come and are part of a prayer meeting. I don't know if you know this. Hopefully you do because I keep talking about it. We've got a group of people praying before the services. We've got people who prayed through the night last night. In half hour slots for the services we've got people right now downstairs who are praying for what's happening right here that's costly worship that's not cheap i think about people who have served in children's ministries for years and years or the parking lot or the cafe and how much easier would it be to come to worship if you didn't have to go and do that too You could be energized for worship, but instead perhaps you've been serving for years and you're tired and you don't want to keep going, but you're choosing to give God something that costs you. It would be so much easier to show up in the sanctuary and have no other responsibilities on a Sunday morning, but yet you're here giving God worship that costs something. I think about those who When we take a benevolence offering, which we do every communion Sunday, you come in here and you see this table and you know it's going to be a benevolent offering. And you already know that this service is going to cost you something above and beyond what you are ready to give. And you're gladly going to do it. That's sacrificial worship. That's worship that is not cheap. I think of those who are here who, when the sermon doesn't really connect with you, or you don't really understand what the preacher is saying, you still fight through it and you still say, there's something true about God in this sermon that I need to find so that I can bless his name. That's work. It's easier just to turn the preacher off. It's easier just to say, well, this wasn't about me this week. I think of those who are here for whom perhaps your spouse or a family member or coworkers. Think you're a fool for coming to church and they're going to make fun of you when you get home or they're going to uh, needle you, mock you, whatever it may be. But yet you've come to offer God something that costs. You see what David is saying to us in 2 Samuel 24 is, I will not give God something that costs me nothing. I will not offer him cheap worship. You see, when we only show up on Sunday mornings when the weather is poor but not too poor. When we only show up on Sundays when there's no sporting events happening or we're not really tired or everything is just right and it's a perfect storm and we can show up. We're only worshiping God if we do that when it's free and easy. And David says, I'm not going to give God something that's just simply free and easy. My worship is going to cost me something. You say, well... Why is this so important? It's not bad to say, what did you get out of worship today? We praise God that we get something out of worship. Why do we also have to think about what am I supposed to give? Why does it have to... Why is this so important? Well, notice that in 2 Samuel 24, the authors made a big deal out of the fact that this is all happening at a very specific place. A place... Known as Aruna's threshing floor. Notice also that this is the last story in the book of First and Second Samuel. Originally these were written as one book in Hebrew, we broke them into two for convenience sake, but the author wrote one book. And it's interesting he doesn't end his book with the death of King David. That's still coming in First Kings. He doesn't end his book with the passing of power from David to Solomon. This is the last story in the book of 2 Samuel. The last line is, Then the Lord answered prayer in behalf of the land, and the plague on Israel was stopped. The author of 1 and 2 Samuel has chosen to stop the story here. That's because what's going on in this place is very, very important. You see a threshing floor? This is some place that's at a high elevation. The reason it is, is that if you're going to thresh grain, meaning you're going to separate the chaff from the grain, you need to have wind in order to do that. So you take a scoop of grain and chaff and you throw it up in the air and the wind blows the chaff away and the heavier grain falls back to the earth and it's been separated. Well, this is a threshing floor that's at a high elevation just outside the city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem where it was in David's day. You see, after David buys this threshing floor, he gives explicit instructions to his son Solomon that this is where the temple of the Lord is to be built. It's built on Aruna's threshing floor at a high elevation outside. The old city of Jerusalem. Today it's inside the walls of Jerusalem. It's where the Temple Mount is. That's Aruna's threshing floor. And that's where Aruna's threshing floor was 2000 years ago. In Jesus's time. Where on this same mountain ridge, another sacrifice was offered just outside the city gates of Jerusalem to stop the advancing plague of death. See, in Jesus' day, God too, in his mercy, looked at the destruction of sin and all that it was havoc it was wreaking on humanity And he told the angel of death to pause outside the gates of Jerusalem because a sacrifice was going to be offered to pay for the sins of the whole world. And on that day, to stop that angel of death, God did not offer something that was free. He did not simply offer sheeps and goats that He could have created more of. He did not offer money that He had an infinite supply of. What He chose to offer was the thing most precious to Himself. His only Son, given to stop the angel of death. The plague that was coming on us all. God offered Him for us. Amen. Amen, amen. And on an April Friday... Almost 2,000 years ago, God gave his most priceless, precious possession, the relationship with his son. And when Jesus was raised from the dead that Easter Sunday, God declared that that Sunday and every Sunday since is Jesus' day. The Bible calls it the Lord's day. And that's where we are this morning on the Lord's Day. And we are reminded on the Lord's Day that God did not give us something to save us that was cheap, but instead gave what cost Him everything. And David is reminding us that when we come to worship the Lord on His day, we must not bring Him cheap worship. He doesn't want something that's free. He doesn't want something that costs us nothing. He wants the sacrifice of praise. We asked the question at the beginning of the story. How's God fair for punishing Israel for something that David did? How is it that God incited David to be angry and takes this census? How is it that all work this together? And I said, I didn't have an answer to that, but I do know this. That if God was somehow rigging this all in his favor, he certainly did a poor job. Because the way he set this whole thing up cost him everything. And so instead, what I think is God is saying is through the gift of Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's saying, you don't understand how it all works. You don't understand the cost of sin. You don't understand the penalty of death. You don't understand the forces of good and evil. But you can trust me that I have given for you the thing that is most precious to me, my only begotten Son. And so, the question for you and I today as we go home, out those doors, into our cars, what's it costing us to worship God? What does it cost us to come every Sunday to give God worship? Before we go to answer that question, we have the chance to take communion. Communion is the reminder that God is not asking for something from us different than what he's given to us. And so as we come to this time of communion, bread and a cup are going to be distributed... If you're a believer in Jesus and walking in faith and in right standing with the Lord, please take a piece of bread and take a cup. Hold on to them. We will partake of them together. After they've all been distributed, there'll be a time of singing uh, in which you can, you can celebrate and participate and, and engage with God during worship. But while you're holding that bread and that cup, let us remember that that represents the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the sacrifice that God willingly gave for us that cost him everything. One of our elders is going to lead us in prayer before we partake of communion. Dick, come and open our time in prayer.